Jackson with us. Pastor Darrell, as I mentioned, can't really speak, but he already had this lined up. And it asked uh, Brother Robinson to come and uh, speak on the workplace and uh, our marketplace and our role in life. And he already had that lined up, looking forward to it, so just went on anyhow. And that's great. Let me just introduce um, Brother Dave Robinson. We've known each other for years and years and years, almost as long as we've been here. He was a pastor in Chicago, and guess what? Fred Job was his associate pastor, just like he was here. He was associate pastor. We moved into this locale area, into Lundquist, and uh, he, uh, Brother Robinson, asked, uh, told uh, Fred Job, said, why don't you go out and uh, apply to be a teacher at Christian Life College? And he did, and he was here, what, 25, 30 years, just resigned this past year. And uh, you can thank or blame <laughs> Dave Robinson. He, no, we'll all thank him. That's great. And we really appreciate uh, bringing Job, uh, Fred Job to us. But we've had a long, good relationship. I remember Dave coming to my office uh, years ago where we just sat and talked about the ministry, fellowshiped through the years. And his wife is excellent with children. She's going to be here tomorrow with our children's church. She uh, can work puppets. Just She's going to really excite the kids. So bring the kids back in the morning, and she's going to be there working with Pastor Darrell in the morning. Or Pastor Luke, excuse me. Uh, Pastor Darrell asked him to come and speak on work and our calling. Uh, he's pastored churches. He's uh, been very much involved in missions. We were just talking about the work he's been doing in Africa, overseas, and all these things. But he also has been in business with two or three very successful business, and he understands Christ in the marketplace. So it's going to really fit all of us. Would you welcome Pastor Dave Robinson to the pulpit tonight? Amen. Thank you, Dave. Well, good evening, and it is a joy to be with you this evening. I appreciate so much uh, Dr. Merrill. Uh, he's one of my remaining spiritual fathers, and uh, he means... Uh, very much to me and was a friend when uh, some of my other friends uh, kind of deserted. You know how that goes. But he's been a good friend and this church has been a good friend. And I just want to thank him again publicly for, for all that's, that he's done and the church here. Uh, Pastor Darrell uh, and I met probably, I think it was January of this year, and uh, I think I was supposed to come in April, and I think Matthew Thomas, that was the only Sunday he could come, and so he said, would you mind to, to move the date, which I was more than glad to do. Uh, I live in Elgin, so it's easy for me to change the dates, and so here we are. We finally made it tonight, and I'm going to talk to you tonight uh, out of two books that I have written, and the latest one is a book that I use when I do what we call Transforming Your City Day. It's, it's about a four-hour day when I get together with marketplace leaders, business, government, and education, and church leaders. And uh, this uh, book, Possessing the Gates of Your Enemy, the other one is Idle in the Marketplace at the 11th Hour, it's a direct quote from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 7. 
and uh, the keeper of the vineyard went out at the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and if you would be keeping the uh, numbers in order, it should have been, and he went out at the twelfth hour, but that would have been the final hour. So he went out at the eleventh hour, and he made this statement, why do you stand idle all day in the marketplace? And when I read that about 15 years ago and God began to give me the message that I now share, I said, Lord, why the 11th hour? And he said, the church still has time. And unless you show up here Monday through Friday and you're on the staff, then God has called you to the marketplace. If I were to ask you to stand this evening, if you were in full-time ministry, would you stand? I don't know how many churches I've gone into, and I've asked that question, and only a few people stand. And uh, so I give them all the attaboys I can, and I allow them to sit down and I turn to the congregation and I say, how many of you are born again and if Jesus were to come tonight, you'd go to heaven? How many? Well, hands go up everywhere. I say, then why are you not in full-time ministry? Now, I grew up in the church. I went to church nine months before I was ever born. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Grandparents on my father's side, along with the Casley brothers, brought Pentecost to western Pennsylvania. They were founding members and lay ministers in the first Pentecostal church ever planted in the city of Pittsburgh, the old Northside Gospel Tabernacle. On my mother's side, her parents went to the founding conference in 1914 and again in 1916 when they started the Assemblies of God. And he was a lay minister as well and served on the first deacon board of the first Pentecostal church ever planted in the city of Little Rock, Arkansas, actually North Little Rock, under T.J. Gocher. I grew up in church. I know church. And for almost 40 years, I, they called me pastor, but I really never pastored anyone. When I got Pastor Fred Job, he, he was the pastor, and he was a great one. I just made sure the people were pastored because God kept putting me back in the marketplace. And I worked for several major companies, including Kmart, and uh, then owned a couple of my own businesses. The last one was an RV dealership in Elgin. My son was a great Highline diesel motor salesman. He still is. But he wanted to take over this bankrupt dealership. I said, why do you want to do that? I said, why do you want to take over a sinking ship? 
I said, I don't have any real money, and I know you don't. You guys stay broke all the time because that's why you're a great salesman because you know how to go out and do it. Oh, we don't need any money. I said, spoken like a true salesman. I found myself after about two months of praying and seeking God, I said, do you want us to do this? Because he wanted me to teach him the other side of the business. Because you can't, you can't lead a business the way you sell. If you do, you won't be in business for too long. And so I found myself with 37 employees, a million three hundred thousand dollar overhead every month, and a two and a half million dollar established floor line to buy RVs with. Trust me, I was up at three or four in the morning many a night saying, God, you said if we lack wisdom to ask and you would give it to us. It's a great story of how God provided, but the story that I like most of all was when I got a call from the CEO of Monaco Corporation who provided all of our Highline diesel units. And he said, Dave, you're going to be broken out of business before the end of the year. I said, well, Mr. Toulson, I said, for all intents and purposes, I'm already broke. You know, when you start a business with $23,000 of borrowed money in the bank and a $30,000 payroll in two weeks and a leftover $700,000 inventory and a million three hundred thousand dollars overhead, you better have heard from God or you're just plain stupid. But I knew God wanted us to do this. And I said, Mr. Tulson, for all intents and purposes, I'm already broke. But whether we're in business at the end of the year or not, that's up to God. He said, who? I said, God, you heard of him, haven't you? He said, yeah, I'm a good Catholic. I've heard of God, but you're going to be broken out of business for the end of the year. I said, well, God will help us. He said, you said that. I said, it bears repeating. He said, do you know how many times you're going to have to turn your inventory? I said, yes. Based on my overhead and $2.5 million credit line, I'm going to have to turn it between six and seven times. What's the industry standard? He said, three's good, four's outstanding. I don't know anyone ever turned it five, much less seven. You'll never do it. Well, God helped us, and we did it. Right at seven times. He called me, and he said, would you come to the, to the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas in the spring and tell the dealers how you were able to turn your inventory seven times? I said, Kay. I said, you know what I'm going to tell him. He said, yeah, you're going to tell him about God. I haven't got this figured out, but I watched it happen. And I'm standing in front of 1,200 RV dealers from all over America, some of them extremely wealthy and very successful from their point of view. And so they introduced me, and I said, very few of you know me. You know mo most of you know my son. He's a top gun, but he's not this good. Here's the secret to turning your inventory seven times. Well, I'll come the pens and the paper. They're going to write this great trade secret. I said, it's very easy to remember. It's just three letters. G-O-D. Off the stage to my right, I heard a man say, this must be an acronym for something. I said, no, it's what it says. It's God. And for a half hour, 
I had the opportunity to brag on my Jesus, who is able to help us do something that all the unbelievers could never do. And I learned a lesson as I walked off of that stage that if you bring real value where you go to minister on a daily basis, God will create a platform for you to be able to be in full-time ministry on a daily basis. I've watched people come into that dealership and get saved and healed. I've never lived two lives. I've lived one life. I often thought God was confused. Do you want me in the church world or do you want me in the marketplace? And he would never answer until about 15 years ago when this message, Possessing the Gates of Your Enemy, came to me. The Lord said, now do you understand? Because I want you to spend the rest of the years that you have helping all the ministers in the church understand that they are called full-time. There's no bivocational people. I've heard that term. Well, I'm a bivocational ministry. Please pray for me that I can get into full-time ministry one day. I've heard people say, I quit my job and now I'm in full-time ministry. No, I'm here tonight to tell you that if you love the Lord, you are called to full-time ministry. And so for the next few minutes, I want you to just take the limits off for just a little bit. I'm not going to give you a new theology or a new doctrine. I don't want to bring confusion to anyone tonight that if you were raised like I was in a traditional setting, it's not that we did things wrong. But Brother Merrill, we just were missing a piece of the puzzle. We're missing something when we spend all of our time and effort training 10% of God's called people with the mindset that they have a full-time calling and the other 90% have a job to support the 10% that are in ministry full-time. I just want you to take the limits off a little bit. Let me share a little story. Then I'll get into the heart of what I want to share. When I was in school growing up in the 50s, grade school, my favorite time other than recess was story time. How many of you in my generation, the teacher kept a book on her desk and she read a chapter or a continued story and uh, always seemed to leave us hanging right when it was getting good and something great was about to happen and she'd say, boys and girls, tomorrow we'll continue that story. This one's entitled, A Man Just Can't Sit Around. I suppose most people have dreams, but how many people actually turn their dreams into reality? Larry Walters is among the relatively few who have. His story is true, though you may find it hard to believe. Larry was a truck driver, but his lifelong dream was to fly. 
When he graduated from high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. So when he finally left the service, he had to satisfy himself with watching others fly the fighter jets that crisscrossed the skies over his backyard. As he sat there in his lawn chair, he dreamed about the magic of flying. Then one day, Larry got an idea. He went down to the local Army-Navy surplus store and bought a tank of helium and 45 weather balloons. Now, these are not your brightly colored party balloons. These are heavy-duty saphirs measuring more than four feet across when fully inflated. Back in his yard, Larry used straps to attach the balloons to his lawn chair, the kind that you might have in your own backyard. He anchored the chair to the bumper of his Jeep and inflated the balloons with helium. Then he packed some sandwiches and drinks and a loaded BB gun, figuring he could pop a few of those balloons when it was time to return to Earth. His preparations complete, Larry Walter said in his chair, cut the anchoring cord. His plan was to lazily float back down to terra firma, but things didn't work quite that well. Didn't work out that way. When Larry cut the cord, he didn't float lazily up. He shot up as if he was fired from a cannon. Nor did he go a couple hundred feet. He climbed and climbed until he finally leveled off at 11,000 feet. At that height, he could rarely risk deflating any of the balloons lest he unbalance the load and truly experience real flying. So he stayed up there sailing around for 14 hours, totally at a loss of how to get down. Eventually, Larry drifted into the approach corridor for the LAX airport in Los Angeles. A Pan Am pilot radioed the tower about passing a guy in a lawn chair at 11,000 feet with a gun in his lap. LAX is right on the ocean, and you may know that at nightfall, the winds on the coast began to change. So as dusk fell, Larry began drifting out to sea. At that point, the Navy dispatched a helicopter to rescue him. But the rescue team had a hard time getting to him because of the draft of the propeller kept pushing his homemade contraption further and further away. Eventually, they were able to haul him and drop a rescue line and hauling back to earth with which they gradually got him down. As soon as Larry hit the ground, he was arrested. But as he was being led away in handcuffs, a television reporter called out, Mr. Walters, why did you do it? Larry stopped, eyed the man, and then replied nonchalantly, you just got to take off the limits. If all of you, and I'm not going to make the assumption that all of you are born again, but if you, if you go to church on a Saturday night in a church like this, I would have to make the assumption that most of you have made a commitment. I want to give you some scriptures. Other than them, one in Matthew 20, 1 through 7. When I came back from Vietnam in the fall of 1966. I came back to a country where I got out of my uniform as fast as I could when I got spit on at the airport in San Francisco. 
And I thank God our country now honors, at least most of our country honors the vets the way they should. But I came back to a country that I hardly recognized. It certainly wasn't the country that I grew up in and to where we are today. What's happened? What's happened to our nation? I asked the Lord that question about 15 years ago. And he took me on a journey that afternoon. It was about a five-hour conversation with the Lord. I said, Lord, how did our nation get the way it is? What happened? And so he said, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, and Genesis 24, verse 60. Most people could quote Genesis 22, 17, the very first part of it. God brought Abraham out of the tent, and he showed him the stars of the sky, the sand of the sea, and said, your children are going to be as numerous as these. But the very last phrase in that verse said, and you will possess the gates of your enemy. I probably had read that verse, I don't know, 500,000 times. He said, now go to chapter 24, verse 60. Rebecca's getting ready to go back to be the wife of Isaac, and the last thing that her family said to her was, may your children be thousands of tens of thousands, and may they possess the gates of those who hate them. The Lord immediately brought to mind Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the what? You're allowed to talk to me. And the what? The gates of hell shall not prevail. He said, when the Holy Spirit said, when Jesus spoke those words, the people that he was speaking to knew exactly what he meant. They knew he was referring to the gates in the Old Testament. Every major city in the Old Testament had not just one set of gates, they had three sets of gates. And they each set of gates opened up into a large roofed-over common area. In one area was business, commerce took place. In one area... The judicial or government took place. That's why they brought the rebellious son to the gates to be dealt with. And the third area was where education took place. He said those three gates controlled every city in the Old Testament and they control every city in America and around the world today. There's only three entities that control this country of ours. There's the government that controls everything through legislation and regulation. Then there's the educational gate that determines the values and philosophies of every generation. And the third gate that pays for the other two. Because as we all know, governments print money, but they don't make money. Sad to say, most of the money they print today is probably not worth the, the paper cost to print it 
but they keep printing it anyhow. When you have $45 trillion of unfunded debt, you have to say America is bankrupt. $45 trillion of unfunded liabilities as a nation. And then the education, those people that deal with our young people from the nursery school now all the way through the university. They determine the values and philosophy that both the business people and the government people use every day. The battle for America is now down to the local level. Our federal government struggles to do anything. If we want to save America, we must now win the battle in every locality, in every city, in every state. The two most influential positions in any community, including Mount Prospect, or whatever community you live in, is a seat on the school board and a seat on the town council or city uh, county commission or however you're governed. Those two entities control everything about our daily lives. The Lord told me we need those that I have called to those entities. Everybody sitting here tonight, if you still are employed, if you still go to the marketplace every day, if you are retired, you were in one of those three because there's only those three. You either owned a business or you worked in a business or you served in government from the local all the way through the federal level or you served in education. Those are the only three. And the Lord said we must as the church. Why do we do all this? Why do we meet here on the weekends and maybe have a checkup once in a while through the week? is so that all of you that God has called to the marketplace, you don't go apply for a job. If you have a job, can I ask you tonight to prayerfully consider going home tonight and resigning from that job and saying, God, I will no longer have a job, but I will accept your calling. I will accept where you send me. You're going to go to the same place, but you're going to go now not as a secular-minded person going to get a job to provide a revenue for your family and to be able to help keep places like this open. If that's your motive in going, then you're far below where God wants you to be. He wants your calling to be as sure as Pastor Merrill's calling has been through all these years and every other church leader across this country and around the world. If we don't make this shift, we're going to lose this nation. Just like Europe now is full of cathedrals that once held thousands of people are now shells of just emptiness. Those are the gates of the city. How did we lose them? 
In the late 1880s, the enemy that we talk about, that we want to defeat, he planted the seed of secular humanism in the universities in America. If you've never read the Humanist Manifesto, could I suggest that you do? You may say, well, that's just a philosophy and ideology. No, it is the religion of the secular humanist. Those that believe in the great enlightenment in the 30s and 40s, now secular humanism had grown from a seed in the universities to where now in 1934, John Dewey, not the decimal guy, but another man by the name of John Dewey, head of the Teachers College at Columbia University in 1934. He was a co-author of the Humanist Manifesto, the doctrinal statement of humanism, which in March of this year was declared a religion in the state of North Carolina by a federal district court judge who told the federal prison system and the prison systems in North Carolina, you must accept secular humanism as a full-blown religion because there was a lawsuit brought in the district court in North Carolina by a secular humanist prisoner, and it happened. Also, in April of this year, the anti-God congressmen got together and formed a coalition now recognized by our federal government as a non-theistic coalition in our federal government. And their calling and their mission is to gain equal footing for those who do not believe God ever existed and want nothing to do with him. How do we combat that? Because the church walked away from its responsibility. America was not founded as a Christian nation. It was not founded as a theocracy. It was founded by a nation of Christians. And all you have to do is study how our government came together, our laws and our regulations were right out of the Judeo-Christian lifestyle. That was the foundation of our nation. And so we did have Christians that held the gates, that manned the fort, that held the Christian worldview. And for probably a hundred years, they held sway in the marketplace. But then the enemy raised his ugly head and planted that seed of secular humanism. And when it blossomed in the 30s, you know the Scopes trial, they called it the monkey trials, when they challenged the Christians and our 
in our worldview if this earth was created by God and everything in it was created by God and the court ruled against us for the first time. And then the secular humanist began to get tenure. You know what tenure is at the university? That means you cannot be fired for almost any reason at all. They got tenure. So what did the Christians do? Rather than draw the line in the sand and say, devil, you're not going to come and take over the universities that our forefathers started. Read about Yale and Harvard. They were started as Christian universities, not just to train church leaders, those going into the ministry in the churches. Read it. It's historical record. They were also established to train Christians that were going into the marketplace. And they trained them together as one. And one of the prayers that I pray every day is God wake up every Christian university, every Christian Bible college, and may they see that the people that you have called to the marketplace need just as much training, just as much theology, just as much understanding as anyone who ever stands in this pulpit. Because they are on the front lines of the battle. They are the ones that are going to win or lose the worldview that we hold so dear as Christians in this nation and every other nation. How do we get them back? How do we regain the places of influence? by every one of the Christians who believe that Jesus Christ is the way and the only way to salvation. Acts says there is no other name given under heaven whereby mankind might be saved. I'm not advocating tonight that you get your five-pound Bible and you carry it every day to work. I'm not saying wear the t-shirts and the crosses. What I'm saying is, if God has called you to the marketplace, you've got to believe you have a call. Otherwise, you have a secular job. I don't know how you hold up a secular job to a holy God and ask him to bless it. Seems there's a story in the Old Testament about two boys offered up strange fire one day to God. Didn't work out too well for them. Now, if I understand the priesthood of all believers, as I believe you believe it, Pastor, it's taught here at this Bible school, I believe that all of us are holy priests unto God. And in the Old Testament, when the priest touched anything, it became holy unto God. We must hold up our calling as a holy sacrifice unto him. You want a promotion on your job? You want a raise on your job? Begin to serve your earthly master as if you were serving Jesus himself, even if he is a heathen. 
you trace it through the Old Testament. When God wanted to turn a nation around, he didn't call for the priesthood in the Old Testament. He called for marketplace ministers. Joseph, Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah. I love the book of Nehemiah. The priest and the prophet were bogged down in the mud up in Jerusalem. And God tapped this young marketplace minister on the shoulder. Chapter 1, there was a report that the walls had been destroyed and the gates had been burned with fire. And he was so burdened, he went into a four-month prayer meeting. That's pretty good for a marketplace minister, huh? Four-month prayer meeting. And he came out of that prayer meeting. He walked into the court that day. King Artaxerxes said, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? It wasn't smart to walk into the court of a heathen king, especially a Persian king, who were noted for skinning their captives alive, stacking the bones of their captives, sometimes four stories high, outside the walls of their city. You better put a smile on your face when you walk into his presence, whether you felt like it or not. He said, what's wrong? Are you sick? No, I'm sad. I just, my brothers just came back from Jerusalem, told me of the destruction up there. What do you want? Well, I need a leave of absence so I can go up and help them. And so... He said, how long are you going to be gone? See, ministry is not about being bored. Ministry in the marketplace is not TGIF. For those who know him, you know what TGIF is, huh? Help me out. What's TGIF? Thank God it's Friday. No, my friend Oz Hillman in Atlanta, Georgia. He wrote a devotional. It's excellent. He, he was a marketplace man. He's TGIF. Today, God is first. You can't wait for Monday mornings. Every preacher I know that's worth his salt can't wait to get back behind one of these on Sunday morning because all week long he's been praying and seeking God and he's got the word. I mean, he wants to deliver that word that should be us when we show up Monday morning. God, what do you want to do this week here? It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're flipping hamburgers or putting battery parts together or leading a corporation of 5,000 people. It doesn't matter. Our calling is above that. That is simply the platform. When I walked into that RV dealership, I didn't know what God was going to do, but I knew he was going to be there. I walked around that 12 acres before anyone else got there, and I prayed over it, and I met every 30, all 37 employees. When I was there, 
Didn't have to be there every day, but when I was there fairly often, I shook hands with all 37 of them. They were not all believers. But I looked them in the eye and I said, I want to thank you for showing up today. We couldn't do this without you. And I could tell a hundred stories tonight of how God gave me divine appointments every day. I share this wherever I go. For the last 14 years, I've traveled 250 days a year all over the world. And everywhere I go, people ask me in the church setting, do you have a course on evangelism? I say, I used to. I used to have a big course. But I said, now I reduced it all down to a little yellow sticky note. And I want to encourage you, if you don't do this, I want to encourage you to get a little yellow sticky note and put this one sentence prayer on it. Lord, help me be sensitive to those you're going to put in my life today. Stick that up wherever you can see it. And then you pray that every day. Some have put it in their visor and when they drive onto that lot where they not work, but they go to minister... They look at that and they say, Lord, help me be sensitive today to everyone you put in my life. Whether it's a heathen boss or an employee that just gets on your nerves. You see, God has sent you to that place. And he said, we are epistles first. Known and read by all men. You may be the only Jesus that they'll ever see. But see, if you look at it as a job just to provide revenue, you're going to miss some of the greatest times of your life. I'll close with this. Where's the scriptural proof that we've all been called, gifted, and empowered for ministry? Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says... To the faithful saints in Ephesus, depending on what version you have. One of the mistakes the church has made is that we believe that Ephesians was written just to church leaders. And so everything in there is somehow related to just them. The book of Ephesians was not written to just church leaders. It was written to all the saints. In fact, a lot of theologians make the case that Ephesians is really a book for all the churches, not just the church at Ephesus. But because the Apostle Paul, who was a marketplace minister, 
And uh, I hear people making the case all the time that Paul was bivocational. That the reason that he went into tent making was because he had to have a job. Paul didn't need a job. Paul was looking for an opportunity. Paul was a practicing attorney. He came from a very wealthy family in the city of Tarsus, the educational capital of the world at that time. When he was headed to Damascus, he had an open arrest warrant. I watched when I used to ride with the Chicago finest from time to time when we served in the city, especially on the north side at at um, uh, Lawrence and Sheridan, our outreach center there. I watched the guys, there'd be a squad of guys go roaring down the alley to this address, and then a group would roar up to the front, go up on the porch, along with an assistant state's attorney with a clipboard with an open arrest warrant. And so when they started pouring out of the house, the drug house or whatever it was, he'd say, what's your name? you just been arrested. On what charge? We'll figure it out. That's called an open arrest warrant. That's what Paul was headed to Damascus to get the Christians when God knocked him off the horse. No, Paul went in the marketplace with Priscilla and Aquila after he preached that great apologetic message on Mars Hill, when the religious leaders asked Paul, who is this unknown God that you talk about? And Paul preached a powerful message, but basically the church leaders blew him off. And Paul, I think, when he walked away, said, they're not going to do this, Lord. They have their role, but they're not going to do this. I've got to get into the marketplace, and I believe the most effective two years of Paul's ministry was when he lectured at the siesta hour from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. And that's when all the business people went home for lunch, a siesta. But as they heard Paul speak, more and more stayed, and all the churches across Central Asia were actually started not by the church in Jerusalem, not even by the church in Antioch, but they were started by marketplace ministers who came to faith in Christ under Paul's teaching and preaching at the court of Tyrannus. Marketplace ministers, you have more opportunities than you could ever imagine. I thank God for all the marketplace ministers who have stepped up to the plate who have taken the challenge. In verses 11 to 16, Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave some to be, small case, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. I want to submit to you tonight that everybody in the church at Ephesus we're in that great meeting. And he said, some of you I'm giving an apostolic gift. Some of you I'm giving a prophetic gift. Some of you I'm giving a teaching gift. 
Some of you, I'm giving a pastoral gift. And some of you, I'm giving you the gift of evangelists. I'm not talking about titles, and I'm not talking about offices. I'm talking about gifts. When I'm in meetings, often people will introduce themselves to me by their title, which to me is already a red flag. I'm apostle so-and-so, or I'm prophet so-and-so. And if they keep on with that, I can't resist. I just have to say, well, how's the gift working for you? See, we've confused so much of this. Now, I, I warned you, okay? I want you to take the limits off. I have a book out there entitled The Abominable Snowman, God's Gift of Apostolic Leadership to the Church. Where I go into detail on this, I, I compare... Ephesians 4.11 to the Old Testament tabernacle and how all five gifts are represented in the tabernacle. I'm not here to change your theology or your doctrine. I'm here to get you to think. Because we've had 1,700 years since Constantine who messed with our ecclesiology when he became the emperor of Rome. And he looked across the table at all the bishops. Because by the end of the second century, the bishops, self-appointed bishops, were all beginning to argue. And sometimes they got in fistfights of who's going to control the church. Constantine looked across the table and looked at the bishop of Rome and said, you're my bishop, so you tell all the other bishops to get in line behind you the beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church. And as a result, we've had spurts here and there, but we've not been able to sustain our ability to hold the places of influence. When I read that day in Matthew, which you all know well, go into all the nations, preach the gospel, or go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all, what? Nations, not people. Nations. How do you disciple a nation? We've struggled making disciples one at a time. How do you disciple an entire nation? The Lord said, this is how you do it. We must launch the other 90% of my body into full-time spirit-empowered ministry. When the power of the Holy Spirit came in that upper room in Acts chapter 2, he didn't just fill the 12. He filled everyone in the entire upper room. Cloven tongues like as a fire sat on all of them. They all spoke in tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. All of them were called, empowered, and sent out onto the streets of Jerusalem. And by the time you get to Acts 17, verse 6, it says, and they that have turned the world upside down have come here also. The devil has turned our nation upside down. 
And I hear all the time, well, we just need to have more prayer. And the church needs to have revival. I said, prayer's not a strategy. Prayer is what you bathe a strategy in. If prayer and revival was the strategy, the upper room church would have never had to have left. They could have just stayed there, remained in prayer, remained in evangelistic meeting setting. Then who would have spilled out onto the streets of Jerusalem? Who would have preached the gospel to every nation? I spent a lot of years in Africa. And after Reinhard Bonnke has won millions to the Lord, the evangelical church, the Pentecostal church, has been in there for, for two centuries now. And still Africa suffers the three problems that they suffered when they broke free from colonial colonization. AIDS, poverty, and corruption. The wealthiest pastor in the world is Nigerian, worth $700 million. Where is the key, I believe? The key is that all of us accept the mantle of God's blessing, accept the call that Scripture is very plain, receive the empowerment in Acts 2, say, God, how did you gift me? And Lord, where do you want me to fulfill that calling? I believe that's the mandate of the church tonight. Thank you so very much. You've been very kind. Thank you for allowing me to be here this evening. God bless you.